Alhamdulillah, welcome to another episode of the Maradiya Show, where we are meeting people where they are. I'm your host, Shadi Muhammad. And so, as I said, we will continue with our discussion on 10 ways to determine uh, your readiness for marriage. For those of you who would like to join me on Zoom, uh, you can uh, join me by downloading the Zoom app. And the Zoom ID is 624-674-3330. That is 624-674-3330 on Zoom. So um, we are at number four. We are at, um, you know, number four from the things that we've discussed, we've discussed already. Number one, uh, your willingness to make sacrifices. That if you are not ready to make sacrifices, you are not ready to be in a relationship with anyone. All right. Because any relationship requires sacrifices. All right. So if you're not ready to make sacrifices, you know, for the people, you know, that you say that you love, um, then that's that's not you're not ready to be in a commitment. You're not ready to be in a committed marriage or relationship. Um, Number two is that you have to be you have to be ready to be responsible. And being responsible, um, the Zoom number again is 624-674-3330. 624-674-3330. Um, number two was to be responsible. If you are not ready to be responsible, then you are not ready to be in a marriage or any type of committed relationship. Relationship. And being responsible means to be responsible for the person's soul. You are responsible for the person's soul. You are responsible for their mental well-being. You are responsible for their physical needs. You are responsible for their mental needs. You are responsible for these things. And if you are not ready to be responsible with these six things, you know, the mind, the life, the wealth, the soul, um, the emotions of your spouse. If you are not ready to be responsible with these six things, then you are not ready to be in a marriage. You are not ready to be committed in any capacity. You are not ready to be committed in any capacity because to be committed to something means that you are, you are aware that there's a certain level of responsibility that comes with being in this situation, right or wrong. To be committed to someone in a relationship means that you are aware at the very beginning that being in this situation requires some level of responsibility. And that is something that we are missing big time in many of our relationships and many of our marriages. We are missing the sense of responsibility. People don't feel that they are responsible. People don't feel that they are responsible. People go into relationships, go into marriages with people, and it's just like, I'm just here to get from you what I can get from you. you know, I'm not responsible for you know, your physical well-being. I'm not responsible for your soul. I'm not responsible for your mind, and I'm not responsible. And it doesn't mean that going into a relationship with someone, they are forcing you to be responsible. This is self-accountability. This is self-responsibility. This is you knowing that by making a commitment to this person, I am also being committed. I'm also committing myself to being responsible for them. All right. And in the Islamic community, we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, being responsible for them for financial, you know, assistance and things like that. that yeah, that's that's okay. 
But what about being responsible for their mental well-being, like not harming them, not, you know, gaslighting them, not inflicting psychological trauma on them? You know what I mean? What about that type of, you know, responsibility? <laughs> that is, I would like to think that that is just as important as, you know, um, being financially responsible for them. So responsibility, you know, is broader than just providing for someone financially or providing, you know, a home and giving birth to the person's child or children. You know, that's your, your responsibilities are deeper than that. You have a responsibility to protect the life, the wealth, the soul, the religion, and the emotions of the person that you are in a relationship with. And if you are not ready to be responsible, then don't go into a marriage. Don't go into a commitment. Number three, as uh, we covered um, last week, is that um, number three was uh, you have to be willing to accept your flaws. Like, if you are not willing to accept your flaws, then you are not ready to be in a marriage. You're not ready to be in a committed relationship. When you go into a marriage with someone or a long-term commitment with someone, the person is going to obviously trigger you. The person is going to mirror to you some of your flaws and mistakes being around you, right? They are going to trigger you in such a way where you're going to expose some of your weaknesses, whether it is, you know, you know, whether it is insecurity, whether it's immaturity, you know, whatever it is, they are going to expose that naturally because you are functioning in such close proximity with the person. It's, it's in, 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 inevitable, right? Inevitable that they are going to trigger you. They are going to expose some things. And if you are not ready to see those things about yourself, then you are not ready to be in a marriage because that's what living with someone is going to do. That's natural. Living with someone is going to allow them entry into some of your weakest points. It's going to give them access to some of your weakest, you know, some of the, the weakest parts of you. And you have, and when they hold a mirror up to you, you have to be willing to accept that. If you are not willing to accept that, then you are not ready to be in a, a marriage. What do you think that the person is going to continue to ignore all of your flaws and your mistakes, and they're not going to point those things out? They're going to point those things out. How much can a person ignore, <laughs> right? How much can a person ignore? Yeah, we would. We would love in an ideal world, we would love nothing more than to see nothing but perfection in our spouses. But we're human and there are things that trigger us and there are things that we trigger within our spouses. And when, you know, as the saying goes, don't ask me to apologize for holding up a mirror if you don't like what it's reflecting. Take accountability and change it. If you don't like, don't ask me to apologize for holding up a mirror to you. If you don't like what you see in the mirror, then change it. Don't try to change me or try to shame me for holding up. You know, you get people that say, well, I can't never do anything right. Everything I do is wrong in your eyes. No, 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 no. That, that's a deflection mechanism. That is what you use to deflect. Everything I do is wrong. No, 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 no. Not everything you do was wrong. What you are, what I am pointing out to you right now is wrong. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to the everything, you know, as we, you know, proceed in our marriage, as we continue along in our journey, but don't, don't exaggerate. 
Exa gross exaggeration is another way of deflecting. <laughs> I'm going to deflect what you're saying by, you know, over-exaggerating. Tafkhim um, al-amr, as they say in, in Arabic. Tafkhim al-amr, you're going to, fakhim al-amr, you're going to exaggerate the situation more than what it is. I'm not saying that everything that you do is wrong. Obviously, everything you do is not wrong. Stop exaggerating. That's a gross exaggeration that you are using to deflect what I am saying to you right now. What I'm saying to you right now is this. Stay on the topic. Stay on the issue that we are addressing right now. Don't be a moving target. You know what I mean? Everything I do is wrong. Everything I do in your eyes is wrong. No, no. Not everything. Obviously, I wouldn't be with you if everything you did was wrong. Obviously, I wouldn't even be married to you. But the thing that I am pointing out to you right now is something that I would like you to take a look at, if you don't mind. <laughs> it's something that I would like you to take a look at. And I mean, as uncomfortable as that may be, sometimes you got to stand in that discomfort. It's uncomfortable because people have been telling you all your life you're perfect. <laughs> people have been telling you all of your life that you are the bomb.com like you know what I mean like as corny as that sounds like you know people have been blowing smoke underneath your skirt underneath your thobe for so long in your own personal circles you know you might be that girl or that guy in you know within your own personal circle you know what I mean your your social circle of friends at work you might be the CEO or the head you know HNIC you know what I mean at your job. And sometimes we live vicariously through these titles that have been given to us. We live vicariously through the images that we have in front of the people that love us, that don't want to hurt us, and tell us the things that we need to hear about ourselves. Your spouse does not see that. <laughs> your spouse does not see that when you're at work, you're the CEO, you know, but when you come home to your spouse, they don't see you as that. And your, your spouse is going to tell you the things that are triggering them and things that are bothering them about you. And you don't get to live vicariously through who you are outside of the home, inside of the home. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You got to be able to standing discomfort. You got to be able to say, I'm triggering this person. You know what I mean? Like I'm making this person uncomfortable. I'm giving this person an unhealthy marital experience and I need to fix me in order to fix this situation. And as difficult as that is, you got to stand in that. Stop deflecting. Stop being a moving target. Stop living vicariously through the titles and the images that have been projected onto you outside of, you know, your home, your immediate family, you know? So now we move on to number four, from the signs uh, to that show or from the ways to determine your readiness for marriage. If you are not willing to be If you are not willing to be in a spousal role, then you are not ready for marriage. And that goes for both men and women. Let me separate. Let me separate the weak from the obsolete. Let me separate 
those who, you know, are winners at the game of marriage and relationships from those who just want to settle for mediocrity. Let me settle this right now. If you are not willing to be in a spousal role, you are not ready for marriage. Go back into the playground, go back into the sandbox, go back to the swings, go back to the playground and go find somebody to play games with you. If you are not ready to be in, and you can come and philosophize you know, the whole institution of marriage, the institution of marriage has been around long before philosophy was developed. Long before Aristotle, long before these great philosophers, marriage has been around way before these people. So no matter what philosophy you come up with, it does not circumvent or negate the obligations that come along with and the responsibilities that come along with be, being in a marriage or committed relationship. You can philosophize all you want. That's antiquated. You know, these whole roles. I don't do the gender roles. I don't do, well, then you're not ready for marriage. And please let me know how that's going to work out for you. That's going to work out for you one of two ways. Either you're a man and you're not ready. And men, men don't usually talk like that. Men don't usually say, I don't want to be in no role. I don't really, you know what I mean? Unless you are cuckold, you know what I mean? Unless you're one of these men that just, you know, that just placate the feelings of women, no matter the whims of women, not the feelings, placate the whims of women, those type of men, the type of man that the Prophet Wasallam said, any man who keeps a woman under his auspices, under his authority, under his responsibility, any man that keeps a woman under his responsibility who is disobedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, lives life on her terms, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not accept his dua until he lets that woman go. You understand? That, that's a fact. Islam is not the type of religion that welcomes, you know, cuckolding, <laughs> a day youth which is called in Arabic. As a matter of fact, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, that the dayyuth, the cuckold, will not enter into paradise. This is a man who assumes responsibility over a woman in a marriage, in a marital situation, and he allows the woman to the free range to, you know, go and come as she pleases, to dress as she pleases, to, you know, develop friendships with whoever she pleases, whomever she pleases, to go, she's a free spirit within the confines of marriage, which is a walking oxymoron. You're in the confines of a marriage, yet you you are, you know, you're a free bird, you know, free to do you, right? She can go to lunch with, you know, her male friends and, you know, ride in the car with male friends. And some of you might be sitting here like, well, what's wrong with that? Well, there's a lot wrong with that to, to men, to, to the type of man that Islam is trying to create. To the type of man that Islam is trying to create. See, when you come into the fold of Islam, you might come in from wherever, whatever walk of life you come in. However, once you enter into the fold of Islam, there's a certain culture, code of ethics that is imposed on men and imposed on women. Some of that code of ethics, it correlates with where we come from because 
Islam, the Prophet said, I only came to perfect moral character. Meaning the religion of Islam is aligned finitely with moral character. That the Prophet say, I came to bring moral character. He said, I came to perfect moral character. Meaning anything that was considered moral from a social or cultural standpoint outside of the bounds of religion, Islam already confirms that. Which is why if two people, right, if two people were married prior to Islam, they were Christians or whatever their religion was, and they were married prior to them converting to Islam, and then both of them convert to Islam, they do not have to remarry. Because Islam already acknowledged their marriage. The Prophet's daughter, Zainab, was a prime example of that. Zainab was married before the Prophet became the Prophet. The Prophet's eldest daughter, Zainab, she was married prior to the Prophet receiving revelation. And when the Prophet emerged as a Prophet, obviously his family gravitated towards that. They embraced it. Khadija, Fatima, all of his daughters, they all embraced him as a prophet. Zainab's husband, who was from Quraysh, did not accept Islam at the beginning. He did not accept Islam at the beginning. So they separated. They went their separate ways. They never divorced. They separated and went their separate ways. I gave a whole entire lecture about this. Years later, three years later, Zainab's husband converted to Islam and the prophet Prophet told Zainab, go home to your husband. So he never nullified their marriage. Their marriage from prior to Islam was still valid even after he converted to Islam. The Prophet told Zainab, go home to your husband. You understand? So anything that was that is moral and it aligns with the the you know, the standards of morality that we have in our religion, Islam confirms that. And anything that is, you know, morally accepted, you know, according to society standards, and it conflicts with, you know, God's, you know, version of morality, then Islam rejects. It might be something that is accepted according to culture, but according to the culture that, the, the spiritual culture that Islam is trying to create, it conflicts with that. Because Islam looks at the whole entire picture. The Sharia of Islam, the laws, the legislative laws of Islam, looks at the whole picture, holistically, of the human life. So while something may be accepted, you know what I mean? While something may be accepted culturally, Islamically, it is, it's conflicting, right? As Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَلَا تَنْكِحُ مَا نَكَحَ آبَاءُكُمْ do not marry those whom your fathers married from amongst the women. Except what took place before Islam. So what did Islam do? Islam made it haram for a man to marry a woman that his father was married to and vice versa for a man to marry a woman that his son was married to. Prior to Islam and pre-Islamic Arab culture, this was something that was acceptable. You understand? This is something that was acceptable. 
according to pre-Islamic uh, Arab cultural standards. It was totally okay in pre-Islamic Arabia for a man to marry a woman, divorce her, and the son, if he decided to marry that woman, obviously not his mother, just another woman that his father was married to, if the young son decided to marry that woman years later, it was totally okay, culturally, it was okay. And vice versa, it was okay, culturally. However, when Islam comes, Islam says no, this is not okay. Allah made it haram for a son to marry the ex-wife of his father or for a father to marry the ex-wife of his son. Now, while that may be culturally acceptable to, according to Islamic Arab standards, it conflicts with the moral standard that Islam came to put in place. And there are tons of examples in the Quran like this. You understand? There are tons of examples in the Quran like this, all right? So the point that I'm making is that a man converts to Islam and from whatever walk of life he converts to Islam from, he has to do a morality check once he converts to Islam. His morality has to be weighed against the standards of morality that Islam has dictated. And whatever conflicts with that, he has to change that. He has to fix that. Otherwise, it conflicts with the standards of morality that Islam imposes. So, for example, Islam is totally against a man being, you know, you know, a cuckold, a pushover, you know, allowing, you know, there should be some, you know, and today we shame men for doing this by coming up or creating terms of toxic masculinity. You see how that works. So when you say a man is toxic for being masculine or displaying masculine qualities or behaviors, he's toxic. And that's shamed in today's culture. And it is quickly spreading throughout the Muslim community and to you women, to your own detriment. Because the more and more you shame men for being men, men are going to go where, you know, men are going to do one or two things. They're either going to change their masculinity, they're going to infeminize or allow society to infeminize them, infeminize themselves, which is why you go into a lot of these jobs like Starbucks, Tar Target, a lot of these stores, see the young boys that work there, they're feminine. It's almost like in order to have a job in this day and time, especially for black men, because the black masculinity it has been deemed toxic even by his own woman. And that's the sad thing about it. Even black women are shaming black men for displaying any degree of, uh, of masculinity. You have to be watered down to such a degree that even your woman doesn't feel threatened by you, doesn't feel challenged by you. And the same thing happens when we go into these workplaces where that we have to water ourselves down in order to be non-threatening. Meanwhile, white men can walk into, you know, a, a, a festival or carnival with a book bag on, strapped with an AK-47 and load, you know what I mean, his AK-47. And it's like, well, he's never been in trouble. You know, he may have some mental health issues. You've got to be kidding me. There is no masculinity that is more toxic than white male masculinity. That's a fact. 
Black male masculinity is not toxic. <laughs> We're trying to hold on to whatever little bit of masculinity we have. There is nothing, there's no masculinity that is more toxic than white male masculinity. Hence the fact that, you know, feminism started out to confront white male masculinity. Feminism didn't start with, you know, you know, Muslim, black Muslim women and this toxic masculinity, you know, um, you know, uh, phenomenon, this, this, you know, momentum that is gaining with this stuff. This stuff started long before you were, you know, were even out of the chains of slavery. Long before you were even out of slavery, you had white women trying to confront and challenge the white male masculinity. So if we're going to talk about toxic masculinity, let's talk about the real toxic masculinity, white men who have America on, you know, on, a, on high alert at all times, at all times. Let's talk about it. You want to talk about toxic masculinity? Let's not shift the focus to African-American men. Like we, I mean... <laughs> Our masculinity, sometimes, it, it, even if we use the word toxic, if, if our masculinity gets to a point where it becomes aggressive or it becomes, you know, just, you know, over-assertive, it's a protection. It's a protection for us. You understand? That's our armor. That's our coat of mail. That's how we protect ourselves. So we got a mean mug. We got to wear, you know, a mean face. We got to work out and, you know, make ourselves buff. That's, that's our protection. Meanwhile, you got our women looking at us like, oh, you toxic. It's like, look at the world that we live in. Like, what do, what do you want me to be? You want me to, I'm at 10. You want me to dumb myself down to three just so you don't feel threatened? But what about when I have to walk out into the world and I have to, you know, you know protect my wife, I have to protect my children. Sometimes you're walking in the mall and, you know, a white guy might be walking right towards you. You know what I'm saying? Like, where's your protection? Sometimes it's okay for other people to feel threatened because that's your protection. You can't imagine how many African-American men have been spared, you know, some white toxicity as a result of, you know, how strong you are, how buff you look or the look on your face. You understand what I'm saying? Like, we, we got that look on our face like, man, I wish you would. I, I stay anytime I walk out my door, my face is I wish you would. No offense to anybody, but that's that's protection. You understand? It's it's a protection. So you know it's, it's important, man, that's that you know we don't run with these terms in the Islamic community, like Islam dictates that men coming into the religion of Islam display some level of masculinity. They have to have some level of masculinity. You know what I mean? You're talking about, you know, Abu Dujana, who, you know, they were lining up for war. They were lining up to go to war. And Abu Dujana is walking, you know, down the aisle, you know, they, you know, prepping the soldiers, you know, at, during that time, they would line the men up getting ready for war. And, you know, the, the war speech, you know, the leader, the head would give the war speech, you know, trying to, you know, get the adrenaline flowing and get them, you know, get that fear out of them. And Abu Dujana is walking down the walking down the ranks, you know, with his armor on and he's walking with a real arrogance. And Umar says to him that you are walking, Temshi bi 
that you are walking with a walk that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala normally hates, but it is acceptable in this situation. You understand? You are walking with a walk that in a normal instance, Allah would hate it because it's, it reeks of arrogance and pride. But in this situation, it's warranted. It's warranted. You understand? This is Abu Dujana, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Umar, anhu. And Umar was just as masculine as any man. And Umar says to the guy, you are walking with a walk that Allah dislikes, except in this situation. Your masculinity, what you are displaying of, you know, strong male presence is warranted in this situation. You understand? Now you got these women, you walking around with your bonnets, you went off, you went from wearing a hijab, you know, you went from wearing a hijab behind the ear, the Nation of Islam version of hijab, and then you put on the full hijab, and then to take a full hijab off, and now you're just wearing a bonnet on your head. You know what I mean? Like, what's next? You want to go dreadlocks and take the bonnet off, and, you know, you just, you're just completely walking yourself out of Islam. You don't even realize it. You don't even realize it that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has led you astray. Allah says in the Quran, that when they decided to go astray, Allah caused their hearts to go astray. Look at look at what is happening to many of our women who you know profess this whole toxic masculinity and in feminizing men. Islam does not accept that. Islam for the men, for the men, Islam does not accept that. So if you want to be infeminate, you are going to run into conflict with Islam. The Prophet said, any man that maintains a woman, that maintains responsibility of a woman who is disobedient to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then Allah will not accept his dua until he lets that woman go, until he divorces her. Allah will not accept his dua. So this forces men to, to take some level of ownership over their masculinity and not to allow women to decide for you to what degree you can be masculine. I'll be damned. You've got to be kidding me. I'll be damned. You have to be kidding me. that You as a man can say with your own two, your two lips that I am a man, yet you allow your wife, your woman to dictate to you to what degree you can be masculine? Nope. That, you know, at a seven, that's toxic. No, you need to bring it down a little bit. Bring it down to five. Bring it down to four. Okay, I'm comfortable. You can be masculine at three or four. I'm comfortable with you at three or four. You, you're going to run into a conflict. Islam doesn't accept that, man. Islam doesn't accept that. You're going to run into problems. I can give you a whole rundown of ahadith that, you know, shame the man for not being a man, what would be deemed or considered toxic masculinity. But in order for you to decide that you are ready to be in a marriage, you have to be willing to accept a role. Marriage, the institution of marriage comes with a role for both husband and wife. It, it comes with a role. There is no escaping that. Now, to what degree does that role apply to you? Everybody's situation is different, and I'm going to get into that. But there are roles. And to completely dismiss that altogether 
under this guise, uh, under the guise of liberation from spousal roles and, you know, this new age, this new, you know, uh, phenomenon of, you know, men and women can go into relationships and then doesn't necessarily have to be a role. Like you are making that up as you go along. Marriage, I believe personally, I believe based upon my religion, marriage is a, uh, uh, is a, is a social institution that was designed by God. I believe that. I don't believe that man created marriage. I believe that marriage was something that was dictated by God. I believe that. And if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded marriage or dictated or ordained marriage on human beings, he also legislated with that institution of marriage, roles, responsibilities, guidelines, and all of the workings that come along with the institution of marriage. I believe that. That's, that's my belief. I don't, I don't know where you guys are getting your references from or what you are following, but anyone who studies the Quran and the Sunnah would arrive at the same you know, understanding that I have, I'm sure. I'm sure. So if you are ready to be, if you're not ready to be in a spousal role, then you are not ready to be married. You're not ready to be in a committed relationship because those close relationships like marriage and, you know, long-term relationships, they require people to take a certain role. That role could change depending on time, depending on circumstances, but there are roles. There are roles. The institution of marriage in Islam comes with a set of roles for the husband and wife. The Prophet wasallam. let me give you the Islamic context. Let me give you the Islamic context for this. The Prophet wasallam. he mentioned an authentic hadith, that all of you are shepherds and all of you are responsible for your flock. So there comes a responsibility, something, a set of guidelines that you are responsible for. That's what a role is. That's what a role is. What is a role? A role is when you walk into an institution, you assume a certain responsibility. That responsibility comes with a certain level of responsibilities, obligations that you have to abide by. You have to adhere to. And I'm amazed at Muslims who say, I don't understand, I don't agree with the role, the whole role, but yet you go take a job and you got a role to do at your job. <laughs> and you're just doing that for worldly purposes. This is something, you know, that may possibly get you into paradise. Some people are not good at praying. Some people are not good at fasting. Some people are not good at many of the rituals of Islam. But, you know, you're a damn good wife. You're a damn good husband. You, you know, you handle your role with, you know, with, with, you know, with it's admirable the way that you carry yourself as a husband or as a wife. You might get the Jannah just simply on the way that you handle yourself within the institution of marriage. Maybe you don't make a lot of extra prayers. Maybe you don't do a lot of extra fasting. Maybe you don't do a lot of that stuff, but you're a damn good wife. You're a damn good husband. And everything you do within that capacity, it is added to your scales of hasanat. Absolutely. That Allah will not cause the 
reward of the good doers to be, you know, wasted or neglected. Allah is still going to reward you. You're going to be rewarded. But I'm amazed at a person who takes a job, a Muslim, who says, oh, I don't, you know, all that role stuff in marriages, I don't agree with all of that. I think people can kind of figure it out in their, you know, okay, do you go into a job and you say, I, I don't, you know, I'm not accepting this on-the-job training, this whole, you know, role and responsibilities that I have. I think people should just be able to come to work and figure it out as they go along. Do you say that when you get hired at a job? For doing your purposes, obviously. Do you say that when you go to get a job, that you go into your job, your first day on the job, and you say, well, you know, <laughs> I think that, you know, people coming into the job should just be able to assume, you know, their rightful position in the job, you know, because of their personal experiences, and they shouldn't have to be, you know, binded by this code of ethics and responsibilities. I don't think they should have to be binded by that. Do you say that when you go into your job, or do you take the role that is handed to you? Sometimes even at your own dissatisfaction, <laughs> you don't want the worker role. You don't want the, the entry-level position. Yet, that's what you qualify for. That's what they hand you, and you take it gracefully. <laughs> you take it and you do it <laughs> with grace <laughs> and gratitude. <laughs> You walk into a job and they tell you, you know, you got to mop the floors and you got to do this. That's your role. You don't walk in and say, well, I think we should be able to just tweak it as we go along. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's just complete hypocrisy, man. It's just complete hypocrisy, man. Honestly. And there's, there's going to come a time where we as Muslims have to separate, you know, those who adhere to Islam, you know, and those who accept and embrace Islam from those who don't. You know, we, we, we have to learn, you know, what I'm saying, right, you got to follow the policies and procedures of the job, you know, you got to follow your job description, right? They give you a drop a job description, you got to sign off on a packet after you read the whole job description and you say, okay, you sign off. Yeah, I'll take this role. I'll take this position because somebody is writing a check for you. But yet God tells you, if you want the institution of marriage, these are the roles and responsibilities in your marriage. And we say, nah, I don't, I don't agree with that. You don't agree with God, mashallah. All you intelligent PhD, master's degrees, and you know, you, you're gonna think yourself right on out of the fold of Islam. I keep saying that, and it's it, the more and more you look out into the Muslim world, it is, it is really sad, man. It is really sad what we have done to this beautiful religion, man. and all of the you know, the all of what Islam entails, man. You know, just on the on, you just just on the strength of how smart we think we are, and how politically correct we want to be, and how socially accepted we want to be. You know what I'm saying? And we'll begin to, you know, chip away at the religion, as the Prophet Sallallahu said, "Harika yahlikidin," shaving off our religion bit by bit by bit until there is nothing left. Until there is nothing left of our deen. SubhanAllah, man. And non-Muslims don't even have to 
do it anymore. Muslims, we're doing the most damage to Islam than anybody. Non-Muslims just got the ball rolling with the Islamophobia. And now, because Muslims, Muslims, let me say this, Muslims are more Islamophobic than non-Muslims. That's a fact. Muslims are more Islamophobic than non-Muslims. We are scared of Islam. We are afraid of Islam, which is why we keep tweaking the religion and turning the religion and, you know, coming up with different ways to interpret the religion. We are more Islamophobic than non-Muslims will ever be. Non-Muslims are not afraid of Islam. Non-Muslims are not afraid of Islam. Muslims are afraid of Islam. Look at how far we've distanced ourselves from Islam. Muslims won't even even give you the salams in public. You say, Salaamu Alaikum, you are enthusiastic. You know, you see a brother in the mall, you see somebody, Salaamu Alaikum. What are you afraid of? What are you embarrassed about? You get one brother who's working on a job, right? Or one sister working on a job. Nobody in the job knew they was Muslim. Y'all come from the same neighborhood, so you know the person's Muslim. Or you grew up with them. You know they're Muslim. So you start working, you give them the salams on the job. Hey, salam And they're like, why they salam? Because nobody in the job knew they were Muslims. And now you're about to put them on front street. And believe it or not, these same people are the ones that will get you fired. They will get you fired because they don't want you to expose to everybody else in their circle that they are actually Muslim. They worked so many years at that job trying to fit in, trying to share their Islamic identity, and here you come blowing a spot up. Blowing a spot up, and they'll get you fired for that. I've seen that joint with my own eyes. They'll get you, they'll get you fired for that. All you're doing is trying to engage them as they say they are. You say you're a Muslim, I'm just going to engage you as a Muslim. But you spent so much of your time trying to prove to your peers, your coworkers, your colleagues that you, you don't have anything to do with Islam. And then here come this guy, here come this sister blowing your spot up in front of everybody. We are more Islamophobic as Muslims than non-Muslims will ever be. We are afraid of Islam. We are afraid of Islam. But we superimpose that on non-Muslims under the guys of you know islamophobic rhetoric when in fact you are afraid of islam but you are hiding under the islamophobic rhetoric and using that as you know your launch pad to you know in, in, enact all of these different policies you know muslim politicians and you know muslim politicians y'all they are more islamophobic than the people that they claim are islamophobic when the last time you seen a muslim politician at the masjid praying for fajr When the last time you saw a male Muslim politician with a full beard following the sunnah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? When the last time you seen that? Please tell me. Anyway. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, All of you are shepherds and all of you are responsible for your flock. And then he goes in to explain, you know, each and every role and responsibility. He said, He said, a man is a shepherd and he is responsible for his household. 
A man is a shepherd and responsible for his household. Y'all don't want to have that conversation. I let y'all bask in your ignorance, man. Y'all not ready to have that conversation, man. Those are the conversations that we need to have. Everybody high and under this umbrella of Islamophobic rhetoric when in fact, Muslims, you are more Islamophobic than anybody. You are more afraid of Islam than anybody. You have Muslim politicians, council men and women dancing in the street with homosexuals, dancing in the street celebrating gay pride, and we're not Islamophobic. I would like to think that we would stand on principle and say, you are free your life however the hell you want to live your life, but I don't have to agree with that. I can respectfully disagree with your lifestyle, and I don't have to be out in the streets dancing with you. However, I wouldn't let somebody just randomly attack you. I wouldn't let I wouldn't let that happen either. But I don't have to dance in the street with you to prove to you that I am, you know, pro-life or I'm, you know, pro-humanity. You understand what I'm saying? You are more Islamophobic than the people you are claiming are Islamophobic. Many non-Muslims don't give a damn one way or another what type of religion you practice. But we are so careful to cross our eyes, dot our T's, not do this, not do that. I don't want to offend nobody. I don't want to do this. Why are you afraid of Islam? Why are you afraid of Islam? Which is what the Prophet, what, what Umar said to the Prophet Sallallahu He said, He said, aren't we the ones that's on the truth and our enemies are the ones that are on falsehood? Aren't we the ones that are on the truth and our enemies are those that are on falsehood. Umar, the Prophet ﷺ said, Bella, of course. Then Umar said, Why are we hiding then? What are we afraid of? If we're the ones that are on the truth, why are we afraid? Why are we the ones that are afraid? Why are we hiding? You know what I mean? It just made sense to Umar. He just couldn't understand why is it that you know, we are the ones that are on the truth and our enemies are the ones that are on falsehood, yet we're the ones that are hiding? We are the ones that are afraid. You know, so the Prophet ﷺ said, that a man is a shepherd and responsible for his household. That's a responsibility, that's a role. That's a role. And Muslim men, if you are ready to get married, but you're not ready to pay bills, you're not ready to use your paycheck to satisfy all of the financial responsibilities that lie on your shoulders, if you are ready to get married and you are not ready to be responsible for, you know, the family that you married into, whether it was, a, you know, children from, you know, a previous relationship or children that you brought into the world with that woman, if you are not ready for that role, if you are not ready to be responsible by ignoring the DMs that come to you on a daily basis, if you are not ready to be responsible by not sliding into the DM of somebody else or some other woman, marriage comes with a responsibility or with a role. You understand? Marriage comes with a role, a role, a set of responsibilities and obligations. If you are not ready for that, then go back to the playground and continue playing. Don't put your, don't put your feet in those shoes it's not your size yet. Don't put your feet in those shoes. It's not your size yet, man. A lot of guys who convert to Islam, you know, and the, the fact of the matter is that if you wasn't Muslim, 
marriage would have been the furthest thing from your mind. You convert to Islam and now all of a sudden you become ready for marriage. How are you ready for marriage? I'm, I'm curious, because you're ready to have sex? That's the indication that you're ready for marriage? Because I'm Muslim now and now I qualify to marry one of the Muslim women so that automatically makes me ready for marriage? There's no prep put into it. No marriage prep put into anything. I'm ready for marriage. I had a guy post on my, my Facebook page the other day, you know, uh, when I, I posted a clip saying, you know, um, you know, marriage should be the furthest the, the thing from a new convert's mind. And it's like, where are you getting your information from? You know, we should get married. The moment we're ready to get married and save ourselves from that, the same rhetoric, man, the same rhetoric. So when you are ready to save yourself from the hellfire, when you are ready to do this and to do that, you are ready for marriage. MashaAllah. You are ready for marriage. No prep. No prep is put in that whatsoever. MashaAllah. I mean, like, the Islam that, you know, you guys want, I'll just keep mine to myself. I'll crawl, me and my family, we'll take, as the Prophet Sallallahu said, we'll take our sheep and our cattle and we'll go up to the mountain somewhere and just completely disappear. Because sometimes I really feel like a stranger amongst the Muslims. Sometimes the Muslims literally have me asking myself questions like, damn, like, am I crazy? Am I the only one that is seeing this? You know what I mean? Like, literally crazy, man. The ideas, the thoughts. And I mean, you know, anyway. He said, And the woman is responsible. That the woman is a ra'iya, is a shepherd, and she is responsible for her husband's home, responsible for his kids, responsible for his wealth, responsible for all of these things. The woman is a ra'ya. She is a shepherd and she's responsible, meaning she has a role to play. She has certain responsibilities that come with her becoming a wife. That the moment you decide that you are ready to be somebody's wife is the moment that you accept a role that is coming along with that, that, that marriage, that position. You don't get to just call yourself a wife. You don't get to just call yourself a wife without valid that term wife by fulfilling those responsibilities that come along with the term wife. You guys following me? The term wife comes with a certain set of responsibilities that validate the term wife. You understand? You can't just come into marriage and say, well, I'm the wife, and you don't do any of the things that validate that term wife. You, you, you don't, you, you guys follow me, like, you don't get to do that. We want the title, but we don't want the responsibility that come along with the title. As a matter of fact, we create our own responsibilities. We, we tweak it as we go along, and then we wonder why many of our marriages are dysfunctional. So this whole idea of liberation from spousal roles is what has contributed by and large to a lot of the dysfunction that we see in many of our marriages.
many of the marriages that we see, the relationships that we find ourselves in are dysfunctional sometimes from top to bottom, from A to Z. Dysfunctional, simply because we have liberated ourselves from this whole antiquated idea of spousal roles. We are essentially trying to take an institution that was created by Allah, created by God, and apply our own rules to it based upon our desires, based upon societal dictates, based upon cultural, you know, traditions um, that are clearly going against the, you know, you know, the rules and regulations and guidelines that God has put in place. Um, and, and it's clearly not working for us, you know, and I don't understand. And then we turn around and wonder why, you know, many of our marriages are dysfunctional. Like, I don't understand why we can't see the root of our problems, why we can't see the root of our problems. You, you're trying to tweak it to make it work the way you want it to work. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, um, that if the truth was in accordance with man's desires, everything in the heavens and the earth would have been corrupted, would have been rendered dysfunctional. Things that God institutes are not supposed to be ran by man's desires. It's supposed to be carried out and exercised the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended it for, it for it to be. We come along and we say, nope, I don't agree with all this role stuff. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do my thing. And you got to just kind of meet me where I am. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. Let me, let me share a hadith with you before I end. The Prophet وسلم, he mentioned a hadith that was graded Hassan. The Prophet وسلم, he said, Inna Allah That Allah has obligated responsibilities or obligations. Don't abandon them. Don't abandon them. Allah has obligated certain obligations. Don't Neglect them. And he has set certain boundaries. Don't cross them. Don't transgress them. And he has made certain things haram. Don't engage in them. Don't fall into them. And you said that he has been silent about certain things, not out of forgetfulness, but as a mercy to you that certain things have been just left alone. Gray area stuff. Don't touch it. He said, Don't go in search of it. Don't go in search of it. You have people asking, you know what I mean? Like, you have this uh, politician, Rashida Tilab or Talib or something like that. She said, you know, Allah to her is a female. Allah is a she. None of the Sahaba ever asked whether or not Allah is a male or female. 
These are things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remain silent about. So don't go in search of those things. None of the Sahaba ever asked whether or not Allah was a male or female. You got this so-called Muslim politician who say Allah to her, to her is a female, is a she. God to me is she. MashaAllah, you have allowed your feminism to, you know, that's toxic femininity. Toxic femininity. You can quote me on that. Come for me. I'm, I'm prepared. Trust me. Come for me. I'm, I'm good on my end. Come for me. I dare you. That's toxic femininity. Allah is a she. MashaAllah. So everything in your life, because of your feminism, has to be pink and female. So, you know, I mean, so even the men that you see, they should be females too. And, and she's a Muslim politician. In my heart of hearts, in my belief, I don't believe these people are Muslim. I'm just, I'm just being honest with you. I'm not making takfir, but what people utter out of their mouths, as Umar said, that when revelation was coming down, it exposed people. He said, but now revelation has stopped. And so we only deal with people out of Zahir based upon what they show to us. So whoever shows and displays to us good, meaning they show us the good of Islam, then we deal with them accordingly. And whoever displays to us evil, then we deal with them accordingly. You see people for who they are. When a person tells you who they are, believe them. Don't flip it on me and say, oh, you're making tech fear. Are you, we don't know what's in the person's heart. I'm not judging what's in the person's heart, nor is it our responsibility to judge what's in the person's heart. We leave the, you know, the dakhil, we leave the, the, the baltan, we leave what is internal to God. That's not my place. But when you show outwardly your statements, your actions conflict with Islam, I have no other choice other than to call you as you are, as you want to be called. But you still hide under the umbrella of Muslim. I'm sorry, it doesn't work like that. I don't care what's in your heart. I don't have nothing to do with what's in your heart. I'm not judging what's in a person's heart. I'm judging the actions that conflict with Islam. None of the Sahaba ever asked the Prophet what gender was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. None of them. None of the Sahaba ever asked the Prophet what gender was Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they asked him many things in the Quran. So the last line of the hadith, the Prophet said, Wa sakata an ashya. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remains silent about certain things, not out of forgetfulness, but out of a mercy for you. So don't go and seek, don't go out in search of knowledge about it because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't mention it for a reason, as a, as a mercy for us. And here we are today arguing about whether Allah is in a place, right? If, uh, you know, you, you have all of these just frivolous arguments. Is Allah contained within a space or he's not contained within a space? Is Allah here on earth with us? 
law of this, or the law of male or female, la ilaha illallah, we sound like Bani Israel. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded Bani Israel to slaughter the cow, right, the calf, which is, you know, the story of slaughter to calf, when Allah commanded Bani Israel to slaughter the calf, they say, you know, ma launuha, what color should it be? Should it be male or female? Should it be, it sound, that's exactly how we sound today as Muslims. We think that we sound intelligent. We think we sound academic. And the only reason the books of the scholars of Aqidah is saturated with a lot of these philosophical arguments is because they were living in a time where they had to address those things. Ali radiallahu anhu, he said, that knowledge is one point, very simple, very simplistic in its nature. Knowledge is very simple. That the ignoramuses have made knowledge unnecessarily expansive, unnecessarily, you know, vast. Because every time an ignorant person speaks without knowledge, someone that has knowledge has to come back, has to correct him, has to put forth the argument that corrects him, and has to, you know, make sure that that argument, you know, never, it never pops up again, has supplied the argument with all of the necessary delil, adilla, evidences and proofs that it was needed. Otherwise, if he had never opened his mouth, it would have never been a need for a scholar to write a book on it. Knowledge is one single point. Ignorant people have made knowledge unnecessarily vast and expensive. It's not, not that simple. It's not that that difficult. You understand? So now you have Muslims arguing and debating on social media about whether Allah is contained in a place and whether he's contained in a space. And the thing about it is whether you believe Allah is contained in a place or space or not, does it affect the way that you serve him? That's the question. Does it affect the way that you serve him? Absolutely not. Whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is male or female, I'm just saying hypothetically, for the sake of that argument, I believe that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses the male masculine pronoun without attributing male or female to God, but he does use the masculine pronoun. He did not say, He said, Who is a pronoun in the Arabic language? that refers to masculinity. It's a masculine pronoun. The, ma the pronouns in the Arabic language are broken down into masculine and feminine. And sometimes before, before this whole masculine and feminine of gender was applied to pronouns, pronouns never pointed to gender to begin with. Because all Semitic uh, uh, languages are broken down into masculine, feminine, masculine, feminine particles. You understand if you know anything about language, gender was not associated with that from the beginning. That's a new phenomenon. That's a new phenomenon. The point that I'm making is that whether Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a male or a female, does it affect your worship? Doesn't mean that you're going to worship him more because he's a female and worship him less because he's a male or is he still the same God?
Almighty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that we serve and that we worship. And no matter how much we put forth our best efforts, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can never be worshipped the way that he deserves to be worshipped, subhanahu wa ta'ala. We say in the morning at Kar, Subhanallah wa bihamdihi, adada khalkihi, wa rida nafsihi, wa zinata arashihi, wa midad karimatihi. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. Glory be to Allah. Praise be to Allah. And may he be glorified and praised. Adada khalkihi, the amount of his creation. And we're not talking about just human beings. We're talking about insects. We're talking about animals. We're talking about jinn. We're talking about angels. All forms of Allah's creation that Allah deserves to be praised. The amount of his creation. And he deserves to be praised and glorified. The amount to the degree that he praises and glorifies himself. That he is pleased with himself. And he deserves the weight of our praise and our gratitude and our worship of Allah should be as heavy as his throne. His throne, which is the biggest thing in his creation, the heaviest thing in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation, none of our worship will ever amount to the weight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's throne. And to the extent of his words. I mean, that dua, I cannot even do justice in this amount of time and trying to explain to you this particular, you know, from the adkar al-sabah. This is something that we say every morning when we wake up. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi adada khalqihi wa rida nafsihi wa zinata arashihi wa midad kalimatihi. Subhanallah, if you understand this dua, you understand Arabic, you understand this dua, you know that we could never, in, in our best moment of servitude, we could never serve Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the way he deserves to be served. So why in the world are we sitting here having philosophical debates about where Allah is, where he isn't, whether he's male or female? Does it change the fact that you are still deficient at your best in your worship of him? Does it change? Does it change the fact that you are still deficient at your best when you serve him and you worship him, subhanahu wa ta'ala? So the, the point that I'm making is that the Prophet وسلم, said that in Allah that Allah has obligated obligations. Don't neglect them. When we go into a marriage, there are certain roles, there are certain responsibilities that come along with that. Don't neglect those. If you want success in your marriage, then you have to do it. You have to follow the blueprint exactly the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala intended for you to do. You can't come in and, you know, make it up as you go along. It's not going to work. Please tell me one marriage that has worked and has, you know, managed to remain healthy, has managed to, you know, people in the marriages are thriving, you know, and they have totally circumvented, you know, the commandments and ordainments, and, you know, guidelines that has been, you know, obligated by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't think so. I don't think so. So if you are not ready to be in a role, go back to the playground and finish playing. When you are ready to accept a role that comes with you walking into the institution of marriage, just like you are ready to accept the job description that is handed to you when you start your job, then you are ready. 
If your manager says, here, this is your job description. Take a look over it, sign it, and let me know when you're ready. You take a look over your job description, you see that this is the role that this job accepts from you, and you sign your name, you are ready to work. You're ready to work. The same thing applies to your marriage. You look at the marriage and you say, hey, this is what is expected of me, right? There's a hadith where a woman came to the Prophet ﷺ, authentic hadith, woman came to the Prophet ﷺ, she said, Ya Rasulullah, What is the right of the husband of one of us over us? This is a woman asking the Prophet ﷺ about the rights of the husband over her. That if one woman gets married, what obligations is upon her to give to that man within the institution of marriage. And the Prophet ﷺ began running down to her, her responsibilities to, you know, not leave out of his home without his, you know, his permission. And obviously all of these things have explanations to them. They all have context, right? Text without context only leads to confusion, all right? Understand, every word that the Prophet ﷺ uttered is an explanation for it. Nothing is self-explanatory. Nothing. Scholars have spent generations explaining these ahadith in detail, sitting with these narrations for years, for generations, hundreds of years, hadith being passed on from one generation to the next of scholars that come along and, you know, look at all of what has preceded and all of, you know, the time that they're living in and to explain the words of the Prophet in a manner that is clear. And today we have people who just put, pick up an English version of Sahih Bukhari and Muslim and off you go. Off you go explaining what you think it meant. And if I was to ask you what scholar preceded you in that? Man sabakaka, man Who preceded you in that understanding? You couldn't give me one scholar. You couldn't give me one scholar. And as one of the scholars said to, one of the salaf said to another at, you know, at, at a time, he said, don't ever hold the position or take a position except that you have a scholar that preceded you in it. A legitimate scholar, obviously. I'm not talking about some homegrown imam from around the corner. I'm talking about a legitimate scholar who preceded you in that position. Don't ever take a position in Islam, especially in a matter of aqidah especially, but in any matter regarding the religion, don't ever take a position unless you have a scholar who preceded you. Go back and look what other scholar has taken that same position that you have, whether past or present, whether contemporary or you know, in the past. So uh, I forgot the point that I was making. I was going somewhere with the point. Uh, my point is that um, if you are not ready to be in a role, then you're not ready to be married. Go back and, you know, going back to the hadith, right? So the woman, she asked the Prophet, وسلم, she said, oh, Messenger of Allah, what is the right of one of our husbands over her? And notice she's asking about the right of the husband over her. She's not asking about her right over her husband. She's asking about the right of the husband over her because what is more important is not what you is not what someone has to give you is what you are obligated to give the other person. That is what is more important because that is what you are responsible for. 
So this whole idea, he not giving me my rights because I'm giving him his rights, or vice versa, I'm not giving her her rights because she's not giving me my rights. There's no tit for tat when it comes to that because these are obligation, individual obligations. So even if someone is not giving you your right, you are still obligated to give them their right because then that would make you just as sinful as they are. It, it would not make any sense. As you know, one of the scholars of the past, he said that I, I can't compensate someone who decides to disobey Allah concerning me, except to obey Allah concerning him. That meaning, if you decide that you're gonna disobey Allah concerning my rights, you're not gonna give me my haq, you're not gonna give me my right. If you decide to do that, I will do nothing more than obey Allah concerning your right. I'm not gonna follow you down that path, you understand? And, and no matter how difficult that is, because it is very difficult to give someone a right that is completely negligent and, and you know, um, heedless of your rights. It's, it's, it's hard to do that, but no one said obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was easy. Obeying God is not, not gonna always be at your convenience. Sometimes it's gonna be at your inconvenience. Many times it's gonna be at your inconvenience. So after the Prophet sallallahu explains to her the rights of the husband over her, she turns and she says, if that is the right of the husband over the wife, I will never give a man authority over me. She refused to get married. Why? Because she realized that that was more than what she could handle at that moment. I'm not in a place to give a man that type of authority over me. I'm not in a place to do that. And this is why, this is what separates the Sahaba from us. We want the pleasure that comes with engaging in marriage, um, but we don't want the responsibility. And we'll go ahead head first into a situation knowing that the situation is above us but i'm gonna you know enjoy it for as much as i can she this sahabia turned turned to told the prophet if this is the right of the husband over me i will never give a man authority over me meaning where i'm at in my life right now i am not prepared to give a man that much authority over me that I gotta ask his permission before I leave his home. I got I can't bring anybody into the home without seeking his permission. You know, I mean, I, I cannot fast unless you know I ask his permission. You know, I'm not ready to give a man that level of authority. I'm not I'm not ready for that. And she refused to get married. Matter of fact, the hadith explains that the father went back to the Prophet وسلم, and told him that his daughter does not want to get married. His daughter doesn't, and this was the same woman, his daughter doesn't want to get married. And the Prophet وسلم, said, leave her. You know, don't, don't force that upon her. If she realizes that marriage, you know, the responsibility that comes with marriage is more than she's, you know, has the ability to offer at that moment, then don't superimpose that on her. So what I'm saying is that marriage does come with roles. And if you are not ready to be in a role, you're not ready to be responsible, you know, then don't get married. Take a, take a break, take a sabbatical, take a hiatus, you know, from marriage and, you know, get your priorities in, in, in order and, you know, begin to consider your situation first, you know, before you decide that you want to jump into this. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala a'lam wa sallallahu wa ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallama taslima kithira wa akhiru da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.